with Jay Blessed is a transparent look into the life and mind of a Caribbean woman having human experiences. In Get into my mind as I share my most vulnerable thoughts and honest experiences. I'll take you on a roller coaster of emotions as you get to know someone who might share similar experiences with you. Some might make you speechless, you'll definitely laugh. Others might make you angry and some might even make you cry. But my very real, very raw, very relatable weekly podcast will always keep you coming back for more. Join me as I talk to myself, talk to you, and even talk to some special friends in my head. (laughs) In my head is an introspective look from a voyeuristic point of view. social channels and how you can connect with me please view this episode's summary to join in on the conversation use the hashtag head with jb that's h-e-a-d-w-i-t-h-j-b and follow me on instagram at real Blessed and twitter at jblessed let's get in on the conversation together don't forget to log on to my official website jblessed.com a human experience from a caribbean perspective Episode 44, Be the Change You Want to See, featuring Lieutenant Edwin Raymond. In my head. Hey fam, hey fam. <laughs> Happy Thursday! Screech! Yep, I said it. <laughs> Happy Thursday? Uh, yeah, for the first time ever, I have deliberately done an episode on a Thursday to coincide with breaking news. Our friend and Haitian brethren, Lieutenant Edwin Raymond has officially announced his political run for New York City Council District 40. And he officially broke the news right here on In My Head with Jay Bless. What? (laughs) I'm so hyped. I love it when our guest gives us breaking news, you know, never heard before, heard right here. It just, it makes me feel good. And and it shows how much they love our audience, respects our audience. Man, thank you so much. Before we get into the meat of today's episode, I wanted to acknowledge some people. Episode 44 is sponsored in part by Jaybird Penny White. Thank you so much, Penny, for donating to the production of today's episode. Shout out to all Gemini celebrating during lockdown. You know, special love to my The Hearts of Women sisters, Sonia Daly, and of course you, Penny. Thank you so much. I appreciate all the financial love, especially from my loyal Jaybirds. As you know, for the past year, I have been producing, editing, and financing this podcast out of my own pocket. And thank you for the people who want to keep this positive and needed content alive and have sown seeds into what I call my ministry. If you would like to donate, feel free to cash at me at dollar sign real Bless. Zell me, quick pay me, listen, uh, you can pull out a check, um, shake my hand like the old people and just slide me a little hundred dollar bill. Just make sure you use hand sanitizer, you know, um, (laughs) however you feel like it, hit me up on IG and you will get a shout out. You know, 
that Jay Blessed does things big. Yo, we're heard in over 65 countries and counting. Okay, so if you'd like to hear your name shouted out, you know, contribute financially support this podcast because you know it will be a disservice for me to stop but it does cost a lot for me to keep going so however you can you know solo five dollars solo twenty dollars a little million you know i could take a million dollars right now (laughs) let me stop (laughs) um just to let you know um episode 44 is a vibe. You know, I don't subscribe to respectability politics, but it does have its time and place. And sometimes it's necessary to just have a heart to heart, regular conversation, you know, like if you were sitting down on your stoop or if you, you know, at the kitchen table or if you pulled up by the car and you know, just like you just vibing. That's what happened today between myself and Lieutenant Edwin Raymond, you know, um, without the bureaucratic red tape or lingo or rhetoric, we just, we just vibing and we just talking like, you know, friends. Um, I know I did not ask Lieutenant Raymond about his specific manifesto for his run and the specific changes he plans on making in his community, but that's why you have to follow him and you have to ask him, how about you do that? Now that you know he's running for office, I challenge you, ask him directly and personally, what are you planning on doing in this regard? What are you planning on doing in bringing more jobs to the community? What are you planning on doing um, for more youth mem- mentorship in our communities? What are you planning on doing for the elderly in the community? What You know, you can ask him your specific questions, and I challenge you to do that. Um, his social media platforms and all of that information will be found in this episode summary. But in the meantime, let's get straight into it. This is episode 44. Be the change you want to see. Lieutenant Edwin Freeman officially announces his run for New York City Council. In my head. In my head, fan Jay Birds, help me welcome to the show none other than Lieutenant Edwin Freeman. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, good morning. Yeah, wake up. I'm up. <laughs> uh, all right. So, like I always asked each and every one of my guests, how are you really feeling? Um, well, right now, given everything that's going on in terms of protesting, how, how hard our community was hit with coronavirus, it's, uh, this has been a very interesting year, you know, uh, to say the least. Um, I feel what's going on in terms of protesting was inevitable. It just took the perfect storm of events, coronavirus being part of that, because it gave people more idle time, being that people were out of work. Um, it took a perfect storm of events, but now people are fed up to the point where they're not letting up, we're having c- consistent protests, and we really haven't seen this. And I've been in law enforcement for 12 years. We have never seen protest this consistent in the streets. The people are talking, like you said, they're fed up. And this kind of consistent protesting has been bringing about change. It may not be, you know, the immediate change that we've been asking or seeking, but change is coming and change is actually happening. How does it feel to be in the midst of the protest, even though you're there to supervise as NYPD? Um, I've seen pictures of you, you know, with your fist in the air. I've seen pictures with you with protesters. And, and, you know, you can tell the difference between 
an officer who's there just to um, be a, uh, a force and to maintain peace in their own, you know, NYPD way, but you're there and it's almost like you're there with the people. So tell me about your experience seeing these protests. Yeah, and I'm glad you observed that because that's exactly what it is. I'm, I am there with the people. You know, I feel I feel their, their pain, their struggle. I understand their plight. I am them. Um, but at the same time, I understand being in uniform, they might not necessarily know that. So what happens is, you know, protesters will come up to me, call me a coon, a traitor, uh, Uncle Tom, you know. Um, but then every now and then I would get people that recognize me. And they said, no, 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 that's the one that fights for us. You know, and they would, I, I would find protesters educating other protesters on the spot, you know, right. about who I am. So that, that, that you know, that was, uh, it was a good feeling because, you know, people are recognizing the work. But, I, but you, you caught it. I'm there. I'm there with the people. I am the people. Right. Lieutenant Raymond, can you tell us what precinct you work out of and what district is that in Brooklyn? Yeah, right now I'm in the 81st precinct. That's in Bedside, uh, north the north of Brooklyn, part of Brooklyn North. Um, yeah, just basically cover the Bedside area, the the east part of Bedside. There's another precinct, the 79th precinct, that covers the western uh, side of Bedside. I'm glad that okay. you're there, and I'm hoping that you're making change because we really do need to get rid of rotten apples in this bunch. You know, and yeah. um, oftentimes the whole group gets, you know, bunched with one or two. But if the one thousands are not holding the one or two accountable, then maybe there is a problem within the whole department. Like, why is it hard for other officers to hold the one or two or the five or ten accountable for their actions? Well, that's because of the, just the fraternal culture of law enforcement. You, you basically... You know, it's a us versus them mentality that's been exacerbated over decades, you know. And basically, you could lose your career if you speak out against what another officer is doing. Because, and, and you might not want to even keep your career the way that they would turn their backs on you. You understand? We, it is completely frowned upon to speak out. In the academy, one of the first things that we learn unofficially, because it's not in the manual, so they'll deny it if you ever ask, is you never Monday morning quarterback another officer, meaning you do not question what another officer does. And the problem with that is when you accept that bad advice, you literally lack, the, you're not even allowed to process what an officer does wrong. You're not even allowed to process it mentally. So if you can't even process it, you're never going to see anything wrong with it. You're just going to band together despite how wrong the situation is. And this is unfortunately what I've witnessed time and time again in, in the police department. But going back on something that you said, because this is a cliche thing that said, a uh, few rotten apples, et cetera. Are there rotten apples? Are there people that as individuals who should not be police officers or horrible police officers who are racist, who are brutal? Absolutely. But if this is all people are seeing, then they're not paying attention. It is so much deeper than that. Because from my observation, the issue is not the apple that bears from the tree, you know, that, that comes from the tree. It's the soil in which the tree is planted in the first place. From inception, right, from within the, 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 the fabric of policing is where the issues lie. So when things align themselves and become tragic, 
it's easy to say that officer needs to be fired, that officer, that officer. But what people are not paying attention to enough is why did that officer make those decisions? You know, so quickly we think, oh, he's racist, that's why, or he's just brutal. But then when you pay attention to unofficial department policy, meaning unwritten but definitely part of part of the culture, you start to understand why officers behave the way they do. And what I'm speaking to is something that I learned when I became a cop. Um, enforcement quotas. Officers were given monthly goals as to how many people to stop and first, how many people to arrest, and how many people to get tickets to. And when I first learned of this, I, at first... You know, I said, there's no way this is what's happening. Maybe they just want us to do this so that when we organically encounter a situation where someone should be stopped in first, we have the experience. When we organically encounter a situation where we need to ticket, should be ticketed or arrested, that we know what we're doing. They're, they're giving us, they're pressuring us to, to, to know so that we can know how to do this when it happens organically. That, that, that's, a, that's how naive I was or unwilling to believe that this is what the system really was. But as the months went on, when I was a rookie officer, I noticed that this pressure never, never, like it never let up. This pressure remained constant. And the most important thing I started observing is what my colleagues were willing to do for those numbers, the way they treated people. You know, the same colleagues I would go to a restaurant with after work or a bar or just, you know, go to their kid's birthday party and, and, and you know, they would come, they came to my father's funeral. The same people who I knew were not bad people necessarily. I would watch them police and I'd say, who the hell is this? I don't recognize you right now. Wow. And, and, and once, I, once I got close enough to them, I would say, yo, you know, what was that the other day? Or what was that earlier? You know, he was like, ah, you know how it is, Ray. I'm just trying to get my numbers, man. Wow. You know, I'm going on vacation this month. You know, I'm going on vacation this month. So if I don't quickly get my numbers out the way, I'm, 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 I'm going to have less of an opportunity because for 10 days I'm going to be gone. And what happens with the, with the NYPD, they don't care if you went on vacation. They still want the numbers for that month. You know, so if you take a two-week vacation and you're only in, at work for two weeks in the month of June, guess what? In those two weeks, you still have to still get the same numbers. I want to I wanna, exactly. interrupt here. Um, you talked about how difficult it is as a police officer to speak against one of your own because it's embedded into the culture to protect, right? Your own first. Correct. Um, a lot of people got to know you from the crime and punishment documentary. And Correct. now we're talking about these quotas and, you know, you are part of the NYPD 12, a brave group of 12 black and Latino whistleblower cops who brought a landmark lawsuit against the NYPD over illegal policing quotas. Knowing what you just said earlier about how difficult a, a, whole, a cop can destroy his career if he speaks out against another cop, far less for the whole department. Why was it important for you to be part of this groundbreaking historic documentary that chronicled for five years audio and video and just interactions inside of the department that really showed light on, you know, police abuse. Honestly, I reached a point, you know, because I didn't wake up. I didn't join the department knowing that I would do exactly this, but I did know I wanted to contribute to the upliftment of, of our people. 
I got to a point where I suffered so much retaliation for years that I really just didn't care anymore. I did not care what the consequence to me would be. You know, and to, 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 to get a man to reach to that point where they don't care about their own livelihood, it's, it's, it's simultaneously a dangerous thing to do and a very powerful thing. Because once I didn't care, you know, if I didn't care about getting fired, what's a suspension? You know, what's a write-up? You know, I'm ready to die for this. So what's getting fired? I reached a point where if I had to give my life for this cause, I was at peace with it. Because, you know, I, I'm a student of history. And when I see exactly how our ancestors sacrificed so much for things that they'll never live to see, they sacrificed for us. Mm. You know, I felt this is my time. This is my time. Who am I to sit here and benefit from the work of our ancestors? And here it is my opportunity to contribute to that work for the posterity. And yet I, I shy away from it. So I completely accepted that this is going to be this is going to be my legacy. This is going to be what I accomplished, no matter what the consequences to me. Wow, um, you know, crime and punishment was directed by Stephen Ming, and you guys went on to win a couple of awards. Um, but before even going to the Emmys, before even you know hearing anything about an award, you had to deal with the. Uh, the kickback from the department. Correct. What was that like? Like, walk us through that. Like, tell me some instances of, okay, the documentary is out now. It's no longer a secret. It's out. You go into work. What happens? Well, the documentary uh, premiered, the world premiere was at the Sundance Film Festival, which is the most prestigious film festival in the world. Um, so prestigious that simply getting selected is enough to brag about. Once a film is selected by Sundance, you know, anytime they advertise the film after, they'll say official 2020 Sundance selection. Right. So not only do we get selected at Sundance, we win an award at Sundance, the Special Jury Award for, um, I believe it was um, social, social Impact. So afterwards, I'm traveling the country. I had weekends off. I'm traveling the country on weekends at different film festivals. One of the things that we started seeing is that the department was afraid of this film. At certain film festivals, I would find people that work for the department sitting in the audience, you know, wow. watching, taking notes. Yeah. So right there, that was the first sense that, you know, as much as they denounce everything, they are indeed paying attention. Um, what was but your then, rank in, at that when when the when the film came out? What was your rank in role? I was a I was I just gotten promoted to sergeant like the year before, so I was a sergeant in in, in housing in the housing housing bureau. And and, and so um, was there a time that you think you probably would have never made it to sergeant? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean that's that's part of what the film captures. Um, because I didn't wait to be a supervisor to speak out. I spoke out as in the entry-level rank of policeman, you know, a police officer. So they, they stopped my promotion, actually. Right. And I was, prepared to, I was prepared to never get promoted. You know, obviously I was going to fight as hard as I can to get promoted because I met the requirements, I passed, I aced the test, and I deserved to be promoted like anyone else who, did, who took those steps. Right. So I, was gonna, I wasn't going to sit back 
and just let them take it from me. But at the same time, I was at peace with never being promoted because, you know, if the promotion is what they're going to dangle over my head, I have to be at peace with losing it or else I'll never be able to do what I need to do. I would have never been able to have done public. And don't get me wrong, man. A lot of my colleagues who knew what was going on prior to them actually stopping that promotion, they were like, Ed, just, bro, just play the game. You're so close to becoming sergeant. Play the game. As a sergeant, there's no more quota. You know, you could just play the game, charge it to the game. Go out, you know, go go to Utica Avenue, go to Atlantic Avenue, go to Church Avenue, go to Rockaway wow. in Brownsville. Lock up a few people. Just lock up a few people, man. Predominantly you know, black play- communities. Yeah, yeah, all black. <laughs> you know, and, you know, just lock up a few people, you know, get promoted, and then continue to get promoted. And when you reach chief, then see what you can do. That's kind of like the cliche uh, advice that's given. And a lot of black law enforcement tell themselves that's what they're going to do. But what they fail to realize is there's always a higher position to, to strive for. So if not wanting to make noise because you don't want to, to, to stymie your, your, your growth in the department is your, is your position, you're never going to say anything because there's always something higher to go for. You know, unless they're going to make you commissioner, you know, but then when you're the commissioner, you're pretty much controlled by the mayor. Like, there's always something higher to attain. So if you're waiting to attain some sort of high office, a high position, that's never going to get you actually, you know, to, to say or do anything. You know, because once you make deputy chief, which is one star, there's assistant chief, which is two star. Then there's bureau chief. You know, there's, so, there's always a higher position to reach. Right. You know? Yeah, so just out of this box kind of question, you know, you are a strong black man who has locks, right? And normally we're, we're so used to seeing our cops with, you know, their hair cut off. Like, did you experience discrimination within your own ranks because of your hair? Were you ever pressured to cut your hair? Um, absolutely. Um, as entry level in the academy, you know, I you know it's like it's like boot camp. So they're they're very strong, very aggressive, and they're purposely looking for reasons to poke at you um, because the, the excuse is it's supposed to teach you discipline, right? When someone's screaming in your face. And you, you, you have to have the discipline of self-control to not react violently or to react screaming back. So they're really in your face. So they're looking for reasons to mess with the recruits. And I stood out like a sore thumb. And instructors would yell in my face, ask me, you know, what's going on with my hair? One time, a lieutenant made me step out of ranks, look around at everyone else standing at attention, and he asked me, he basically, one moment, he said, he said, don't you see you don't look like everyone else? Wow. Well, and, and I'm standing there, yeah, I'm standing there like, okay, you well, know, I don't look like everyone else. Because uniformity is one of the things that traditionally the police department tries to achieve. Right. But we're beyond that. We're at a point right now where representation matters. That, that should be the department's uh, outlook. Representation matters. Um, up until a few years ago, every six months, the, the, the incoming class was more diverse than the class before it. And every six months, every single time the commissioner was questioned about that, and every single time without fail, the commissioner would say, quote, 
Diversity is one of our many great strengths, right? Wow. But then that's only on the surface. That's cosmetic diversity. What about true diversity? What about letting those same black minds get into positions where they can make decisions that can really affect our city positively? Inclusivity. You know, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like one of the things they like to reference today is it's a minor- it's a majority minority department, and you know most people in the rank of police officer are minority. I think it's like forty nine percent white and fifty one percent everyone else put together. But it's still a majority white department, even with that, because you have to put every single minority together to finally, you know, get it above uh, the white majority. But and as you go up in the ranks, do you see? Okay, like yeah, Yeah, it's over. All of that is gone, and they know they can't speak to that. You know, that's why they stay quiet. That's why they try to get you to focus on the police officers on, on the bottom. But here's the thing: policy drives everything. So that same black cop doesn't matter if he or she is black. If the policy is you got to get this, if you got to meet quotas, guess what? They're going to meet quotas. So they're, they're contributing to inherent racism because they're just blindly doing their jobs meeting quotas that are not being met in white parts of town. And that same black cop who means well, who's here to do a good job, is still contributing to systemic inherent racism. You understand? And Quotas, broken windows policing, uh, stop and frisk, those do not come from black minds. You know, that's implicit bias. Right. That's, that's coming from the minds of people that don't know anything about us, that figure just, you know, just turn them all upside down and shake them. We'll find something. You know, you know that's what that type of food. No, I wanted to say this as you're as you're you're, you're talking about implicit and, and racial biases. You know, in our communities, black and brown communities, you find people uh, in the police department who are here to protect and service, who don't live in our communities, who don't even live in New York City sometimes. And you know, it will be great to see a lot more of our local brethren, you know, like someone who really grew up in the neighborhood like you, a part of the police department in their own community, because you know the people. So if you see, you know, Johnny, and you see him acting weird, you're not going to pull out your gun because you know that Johnny suffers from a mental illness, so you know how to talk to Johnny instead of, think, you know, using the term how you feel threatened by Johnny's action. But, you know, okay, he normally behaves like this, not because he's going to attack you, but because he's dealing with a mental illness. So I know how to reach Johnny because I'm from this block. I'm from this hood. I'm from this community. We know we know our people. Why is it so hard to to see people who are from our communities placed in our communities? So. It's, it's a very common thing, what you just said, right? And it's because it has a common sense appeal to it. Intuitively, it sounds like it makes it should make sense. And in some ways, it does. But in my observation in the last 12 years, what I found is even that same officer that's from the community, who probably works in the community, that they grew up in or close to it, sadly, as long as you have bad policy, the, the best things about that officer will never tap into. Because guess what? That same officer that knows not to shoot Johnny still has to meet a quota. Mm. So as long as the policy remains a quota, we, it, 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 it literally diminishes 
the beauty in having someone of the community policing the community. You know, so that's why you publicly, I haven't really called for that. Because if the policy is bad, it really doesn't matter who's in the uniform. Obviously, there's an advantage to someone, a native of the community being being the person who's policing. But again, we literally strip away almost everything advantageous about that once we have bad policy to follow. Right. Because I've, I've been there, you know, arguing with my fellow black cops about the way they police. And, you know, once I, I hit them with enough facts, they'll say, listen, like, Everybody's not you, all right? I'm trying to. Mm. I'm trying to make detective. Right? I'm trying to be detective. I'm trying to this. I'm trying to that. Listen, I already got enough things in my personal life. I don't need the job coming after me. So I can't do it how you do it. You understand? Just respect that. Everybody's not going to do things your way. Mm. Some of those same cops, by the way, have reached back out in the last three years and said, "Thank you for what you're doing." Thank you for having the bravery. That day we got into that argument, just understand I'm not as brave as you, but I never disagreed with you. Because now that they see there's some success to the work, they really, they, they, they reached out and, you know, basically um, pretty much apologized. You know, and they, they basically said, we just, you know, we just, we can't, we signed up for a job. We didn't sign up for a headache. You know, and, and what you're doing, <laughs> what you're doing is just, like, it's a completely, think about all the headaches that you can't avoid. Right. What you're doing is a headache that was completely avoidable, and you're running headfirst into this migraine. I said, I get it, but mm. it's for our people, man. You know, they sign up for a paycheck, not to be an activist. Mm. Pretty much. So, so <laughs> and, and, <laughs> it sucks because we, the problem is when people ask, because people have been asking for more black cops for decades. Mm. Because the common sense thinking is more black cops, black cops not going to do this, black cop is going to do that better. But I'm telling you, it doesn't matter almost because it's all about the policy. If right. those same black cops with the right minds don't get into key positions where they can affect policy, everyone's, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, all cops are just going to be, just because they're going to take the marching orders and go forward. And sadly, they, a lot of them don't even give thought to what they're being asked to do. They simply do it. You know, they simply accept it. So... You know, you've done tons of interviews and I wanted our interview to be a, a bit different because a lot of the things you've said before, people could find it on your Instagram. They could find it online. We're really trying to get to, you know, the deep root of why you chose to be an officer, who you really are as a Caribbean American man. You are a proud Haitian. You rep for Haiti every day, all day. You rep for Brooklyn all day, every day. And so we thank you for, you know, using your voice in a very positive way, despite the opposition. And that's why I really wanted you to be here, especially during Caribbean American Heritage Month, to give you your flowers and to say thank you for the work that you're doing in our community. You know, you made mention of of how hard it is, how hard it was even during the documentary when you were going up for sergeant. Now you're a lieutenant. And I had uh, Eric Adams on the show previously, and we talked about you on the show. Um, and Eric talked about, you know, how he and his brother was physically beaten and abused by police officers, yet he decided to join the department to be a change within. And he rose up in the ranks to become captain. And we know where he's at running now for a New York City mayor. 
why did you get into the police department? We ne- I never asked you that from the beginning. What 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 inspired you to join the department, knowing that it wasn't going to be as easy? Yeah, um, I mean that's a that's a very important question, and you know, shout out to Eric. Eric is one of my inspirations. Um, you know, I, I, before I answer, I my father spoke no English, which is why for someone who who was born here, my, my Creole is, is pretty good. Um, I, my, one of my responsibilities at night was to translate the news for my dad. And that's how I became aware of 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care, and Eric Adams in particular. And I remember being shocked that he was an active police officer and saying the things that he was saying. As I was translating you know, the speeches to my dad, uh, uh, particularly after Admiral Louima was um, was you know you know we know what happened to yeah. to Mr. Louima, mm-hmm. um, um, and I was 11 years old when that happened, so that was very wow. difficult for me to. I didn't even know things like that happened, so I didn't even know how to explain it to my dad. But he, my dad, realized what what occurred. So that's when I first uh, learned about who Eric Adams was, and I kept paying attention from that day. And then when I became a police officer, he was already a state senator for about a year. And, um, you know, I remember walking up to him on Franklin and Eastern Parkway and said, Mr. Adams, I just want to shake your hand, man. You're one of my inspirations. And that's, that's how our relationship starts every time I see him. To the point where now I didn't have to go up to him. He was able to pick <laughs> me out of the crowd. And, and he'll come up to me. How you doing, young man, Mr. Raymond, et cetera. Um, but I don't think he knew that I was a, you know, I was a Garveyite. You know, I didn't think he knew that. You know, I, I was about that life, as we say, right. in the hood, um, until years later when uh, the New York Times article comes out. So in, similar to why um, Eric joined, I, I found myself constantly being stopped and first around the age of 15, and I really didn't understand why, you know. And I went to high school in Manhattan. Um, I'm an artist. I went to school for artists. Originally, I was going to be an architect. I studied the architecture for three years. Um, so in Manhattan, many of most of the schools, the students are from other the outer boroughs. So I found that my experiences with police officers weren't exclusive to me. Uh, you know, my boy Allen in Harlem, he was get, going through those same experiences. You know, my boy um, um, Khalif. You know, all of my friends throughout the other boroughs, they were going through those same experiences, and that's when I started realizing, wait. Is this is this how police treat us? Hmm. Why you know why are they treating us like this? And then when I was eighteen, that's when I was walking with my girlfriend at the time, and the plainclothes cops of all, um, they jumped out completely, embarrassed me. They just I had a bag. They dumped everything out the bag right onto the sidewalk, threw me threw me up against the fence, went into my pockets and illegally. I didn't know it was illegal at the time. They searched me, and then. Um, on the adjacent corner where the, the actual criminal was watching me get searched. And I just remember being so embarrassed at that. Violated. And I remember thinking, you know, you know what? I need to join this thing. I need to see what's going on. Uh, in that group was a Dominican cop, right? Mm-hmm. A black man. And I remember being confused because the previous experience I had, negative experiences, were all white cops. So now that the Dominican cop was treating me that way, I said, hey, what is going on? Why is he, you know, why is he part of the problem? So that's when I said, I got to join this thing. 
And that's when I made the decision to become a police officer, to see what was going on, to see, to, to, to maybe, you know, give them a better way of doing things, thinking that if I'm quote-unquote blue, they'll be receptive to whatever it is I have to say. Oof, I was naive. <laughs> Can we go back yeah. to your dad yeah. and Abner Louis? When you, when you translated that story for him, right? What was his reaction? Yeah. What was your Haitian was, dad's reaction? Um, this was August of 1997, if I remember well. And he was just absolutely shocked. And I remember he hated Giuliani. Um, he absolutely hated Giuliani. And he was just shocked. He, you know, the nature of what happened to Mr. Lima, it was different. We'd never heard of anything like that before. People have been shot, killed. Um, choked, you know, at that point, we've had it all. Right. We've never had someone sodomized with, with a broomstick, you know, that was just unbelievable. And he, you know, we started having conversations about what it is to be black. You know, at, at 11 years old, my father had to have those conversations. Really, two years before that, when um, Nelson Mandela won the election, um, I remember my dad was, he was crying. He was so happy. And I, I remember being confused because I'm like, he's the president of Africa. He's black. Like, I don't get it. You know, obviously, I knew nothing about apartheid. I knew, I didn't know, I didn't have the historical context to right. understand how big of a deal it was right. for Nelson Mandela, you know, to become president. And that's what my dad used to really instill in me the concepts of pan Africanism, you know, like, you know, as long as you're black, you're African, you know, all these things. This is when my dad started to have those conversations with me at nine years old. And by the time Agnew Lima happened, we'd have many conversations about what it means to be black in this world. Right. And one of the things my dad always told me, he said, you can be anything you want except president. And when he used to always say that, you can, he was like, one of the reasons why I bust my ass to get you, to, you know, to, to, to get to the United States and, and, you know, and I knew that my children can do anything they want except be president. So when Barack Obama became president, my dad was already very ill. My dad passed away nine years ago. He was already very ill. And, um, and his cognitive uh, abilities had, um, had weakened a lot. So he was suffering from um, early forms of dementia. But I would get him to say Barack Obama's name every day. Every time I went to go visit him, he was in a nursing home. Um, because I had to like, explain to him, my dad, you, you were wrong. You know, a black man did it. Wow. You know, but, um, but yeah, but my dad, um, you know, I miss him every day, but it is, it is what it is. He knows I'm holding it down. I'm holding his legacy down. His journey, my mom's journey. My, mom, my, mom, my mother died when I was three years old, so I didn't really have a mom. Um, but their legacy, their journey, their their life, you know, it was all worth it. In the work that I do now, they they come them coming together to have me, it's all none of it is in vain. I will make sure of it. Wow. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I am I'm so proud of you. And we just came off the heels of Father's Day this past weekend. And I know that your dad would be extremely proud right now right in this very moment because today <laughs> today we got big big news you ready to share it with people <laughs> absolutely so, so go ahead so you know four years ago when i first became a whistleblower and and, and all over the world people read my new york times articles in front it was a new york times magazine feature piece front cover um 
I started getting messages. People would find me on social media. People would email the journalists. He forwarded to me. And everyone kept saying, you need to run for office. Please. This is the integrity that we need in, 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 to represent us in government. And I would always take it as a, as a compliment, you know, but brush it off. Like, no, 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 that's, that's not something I'm looking to do. But last year, I started truly considering it. And I made the decision that I will be running for city council. Make the some noise, shapers, exclusive. You <laughs> <laughs> just dropped bombs as applause going on right now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yo, I'm yeah. so proud of you. I am so proud of you. Thank you. And 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 you. and it's crazy because you're running for uh, district New York City Council District 40, which Matthew and Eugene has been the Democratic um, councilman for that district for a very long time. And he's also yes. Haitian. Um, and, yes. and the 40th district includes portions of Crown Heights, Eats, Flatbush, Kensington, Midwood, Prospect Park, and Prospect Leffitt's Gardens. And, and Ditmas Park. And Park. And basically your, your community, like your neighborhood, yes. where you grew up. Yep. How does where, that where feel? I where I fell off my bike, scraped my knees, played soccer. Yeah, it feels amazing. Um, again, here, unofficially, I've already been representing the people of my community in particular and the city overall, you know, in an unofficial position, you know, because when you're a police officer, you're an employee of the executive branch. And yet, you know, I was doing work that affects legislation. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing work that affects policy, but I'm doing it at great risk to myself. And it becomes a situation where why not just become the official represent, you know, person to represent the, the people? Because um, one of the things that I found is every time I try to galvanize a few elected officials around the issues that I'm seeing in the police department, unfortunately, many of them do not want to be in the police department's backside. So they, base, they, don't, they tell me nicely, there's nothing we can do for you. And it, it shocked me because... You know, all it takes is for something to go wrong, and there's a movement, and there be some of them are the same ones right there at the forefront of the movement. And I'm and I'm thinking, wait, eight months ago, if you listened to me and took action as you should in your position, we probably would have prevented this thing that has you marching. Right. You know, and that's when I said, you know what? Similar to in trying to understand and, and affect change from within the police department, I joined. This is basically the same formula reapplied. I've decided that I will, I will be in City Hall, you know, representing the people, working hard yes. for the people, bringing this same level of integrity to, to not just police issues but other issues. So here's what I have a really good. <laughs> I'm trying to be no bacchanal, sir, but I have a question for you. So I remember um, a good friend of mine, Brian Cunningham. <laughs> went up against Matthew Eugene and boy oh boy was that a fight that was that was a nasty run um between yeah. these two um for the 40th district now you have entered officially entered the race and and I'm I'm kind of hype like, <laughs> I'm excited to see the change that's going to happen. Why did you decide to run against Matthew Eugene? Well, I mean, well, it's an open seat. He's going to be term limited. So 
I don't see it as running against really anyone. I'm just running for the, we're all just going for the seat. I mean, technically, some might call it opponent. I don't even see it through that lens. You understand? Um, I'm not challenging an incumbent like before. Um, Matthew, along with, I believe, 35 other city council members will be term limited. So out of 51 seats, I think we're getting 36 new council council uh, members, which is going to be very, and a new mayor, which is going to be very interesting uh, for City Hall. Wow. Wow. I am, um, I'm excited for you. I, I know that you are the change that we need and it's not an overnight thing. It's something that you've been, this is your lifestyle. You know, you mentioned yes. being a Garveyite. So we know this is ingrained in your psyche on how, you know, Pan-Africanism, but also being there for your people, not just people who look like you, but for all people. Right. And so exactly. I applaud you for making the decision to run for office. And like I asked you. Eric, you know, like you went through so much when you were senator. Then when you were going up for bar president, why you even want to run for mayor? They try to kill you. Do you not? I mean, you went through so much already from the crime and punishment documentary to moving up the ranks in the NYPD. You know, the higher the level, the bigger the devil. Are you prepared? Um, Yeah, again, I was at peace a long time ago with anything that can come my way. And, I, and, you know, it's it's not something I like to talk about, but it's just the truth. So I'm, I'm, I'm beyond prepared. You know, I'm, I'm more than prepared. I'm, I'm ready to go. So now that you're going to be in a position and I'm wishing you the best on your run. And you know what? I, I, I want to see you win. How about that? <laughs> I put that I out there. That. I appreciate that. We, we are going to fully endorse your run. Right here on Thank in my so head, much. so wow. <laughs> I'm making sure the whole team know. That. Yes, we will fully endorse your run because we've seen your heart, we've seen your work. You know them by their fruits, right? And so, yes. congratulations on that. I had to mention something that I didn't say earlier. Shout out to one of my my girlfriends, Kenya Down. She's a black journalist, and she wrote a story. Um, Back in October 2016, that was titled FBI warned of white supremacist in law enforcement 10 years ago. Has anything changed? And in that story, she wrote, open quote, but even if there aren't hard statistics, the problem of racial bias among police is a new. In fact, it's been a concern of the FBI for at least a decade. Exactly 10 years ago this week, the FBI warned of the potential consequences, including bias, of white supremacist groups infiltrating local and state law enforcement, indicating it was a significant threat to national security. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, you know, that's one of the things that's a little bit more difficult to observe because obviously I'm black. But um, so obviously, you know, someone is not going to be as blatant if they have, you know, feelings of bigotry towards towards black people. But I have had friends who are white Hispanic, um, who passed completely for white, who have shared with me that they've been in rooms with officers who have said things uh, like one officer said, um, these these people, meaning the black people in Crown Heights and Flatbush, these people should be put in cages and beaten daily. You know, 
So, yeah, this is a five year old officer. Did they feel comfortable saying that because they thought that person was white and didn't know they were Hispanic? That's exactly, exactly why. Um, And if you do a little bit of research, an officer, a Puerto Rican officer named Michael Birch, um, who also passes for white, um, his commander, who was my commander, the commander, uh, Constantine Tejas is his name, who really tried to put the final nail in the coffin. And when it comes to my promotion, Tahas was very, very blatant with telling him that he needs to stop more blacks and Hispanics. And, you know, why is he stopping white people? Wow. Uh, just under, he, Michael Birch actually recorded this, and if, uh, was it three years ago, uh, if I'm not mistaken? No, four years ago, it was released to the media. So some people who um, did cover it, I don't think the story got enough coverage especially you know it's very rare to get a high-ranking official to speak like that and have it recorded you know i thought that story should have been a lot better known but uh that's a perfect example this is a commander you know someone who's in charge of an entire precinct right and sadly um he's mentioned in my article also yeah and what does the commissioner do because the commissioner promotes him after my article comes out, after Michael Birch's article comes out, Commissioner Bratton at the time promotes him right under Mayor de Blasio's nose. So unfortunately, that right there, it just made me realize that de Blasio is not really who he says he is. Um, he's just not. But, you know, we don't have to get into that too much. <laughs> it's, you know, a, a lot, many NYPD commanders have made it known that white and Asian people should be left alone and, and you know, arrest black and brown. What what has happened with the NYPD 12? Like, where, where are they now? So, so um, you know, we, our lawsuit suffered a blow back in April of 2017. Uh, one of the most important parts of the lawsuit was dismissed. And um, along with that, they also dismissed... Um, I believe seven of the twelve cases, and this, you know, this this was very damaging. Um, my attorney will appeal. My case is one of the cases that survived. My attorney will be appealing, but in the meantime, um, you know, we're, we're here. We're, we're trying. Many many of them are retired now. I think five of them are retired. Four four or five of them are retired now. Um, what is forced into retirement? No, no, not necessarily. You know, they reached a point, and some of them had injuries that led to their retirement. But, um, you know, this was very taxing on, on our careers. Um, obviously, I was able to get promoted, but don't think for a second that, you know, I don't think for a second that it's all good now. You know, every day I, rem- I, 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 I remember that these people are not happy about what the position that I put the department in. You know, I shamed the department. By by, expo- by simply exposing what goes on, you know I know they're not, I know they're not happy about that. You know, so I I, I always have to watch my back. Um, you know, obviously in the film, you know I want folks who are listening to to, to watch the film. It's on Hulu, um, Crime and Punishment on Hulu. Um, a lot of you, you see in the film that my own offices end up setting me up. You know, they tried to destroy my, they tried to kill my career. And, and these are the things I have to watch out for. It's not outright violence. One of the things that I, I heard was that they were waiting for me to call for backup and, and, and take their time responding, you know. When, you know, this is a mental health focused podcast. So 
in all that you've been through, the fact that, you know, you are a lieutenant, the fact that you are now running for public office, you know, with all that's happening nationally, all that's happening right here in New York, you know, how do you take care of your mental health? I mean, that's a very common question, and I could definitely be doing more, you know. But, um, I, you know, I love to exercise. Uh, I pray. I meditate. Um, you know, I eat very healthy, and I try to surround myself with, with just positivity to balance out, you know, what's going on. I just bought a bicycle, so I'll be doing some riding this summer. Um you know, I just try to focus on positivity. I keep my mind sharp. I like to read, you know. And, what was the again, last I book you read? The last, well, I just, I, I was in school. So at John Jay, I actually just finished. So it was a, a school-related book on, on policing. But one of the books I actually read, just, I reread it. It's called Once a Cop by Corey Pegues, because I think he did a great job with the book and just breaking down the department's uh, culture. Um, I, I, you know, I wish that book was better known. Uh, Once a Cop by Corey Pegues is the, the very last book I read. I recently traveled to D.C. and I bought a few books that I'm going to dive into. Hold on, I have them here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I James books, books. Once a Cop, The Street, The Law, The Two Worlds, One Man. We're going to have the link of that in this episode summary. Um, you yeah. went to DC. I know you're going to tell me the list of some other books that you have. I needed to ask you, you know, we're getting ready to wrap up and okay. I love the fact that you, you are so protective, not just of your people, but specifically about black women. And yes. you talked briefly about losing your mother at the age of three. So it was just you and your dad with everything that's yeah. happening around us. You know, I'm, I'm heartbroken that okay there is a Brianna yeah. law but Brianna Taylor's killer cops have not been arrested you know and it seems yeah. that even in death black women are still ignored even in death black women are still disrespected what are your thoughts on the fact that the cops that did kill Brianna Taylor have not been arrested um I mean, this is why we, we're finding um, certain jurisdictions throughout the nation are getting rid of those type of warrants, the so-called no-knock warrants, where they basically bust through the door. But, um, you know, you have to think, the person on the other side of that door, if no one's knocking, the door's coming down, they have every right to defend themselves because they don't understand what's going on. No-knock warrants are done, you know, right before dawn. So the... the the sun isn't even out yet. It's dark. It's at a time where people, 99% of the people would be sleeping for like five in the morning. Um, yeah, that's, it's problematic in itself, especially if you don't have everything accurately. But even if you do, you know, just the nature of a no-knock warrant, it, you, you cannot blame someone on the inside if they feel that they're being invaded. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. There, there has to be some reprimand, you know, because someone needlessly lost their life. She, she did not have to die. You know, the things could have been done so much better. The no-knock warrants, it, it has to be done away with. You know, it has to be done away with. Um, 
this is this is bugging me like this whole Breonna Taylor even recently a, another black woman and activist Olatoyan was found dead you know we we all of a sudden there are black people hanging from trees black people don't climb trees to kill themselves you know like we we don't we black people not climbing no tree to end their life and so hearing about these modern day lynches happening do you not feel I don't know. Like, do you not feel worried for your life sometimes? I know that you made peace with the decisions you made in your professional life, but as a black man, sometimes going to different places, do you not feel afraid? Um, again, you, you answered it uh, already. I've already made peace. Like, I understood that what I'm involved in could cause my life. It could cause someone to see me as a threat enough to try to, you know, take me out. I've, I've accepted that. So, and, and I don't separate the professional from personal like I'm I'm Edwin Raymond I made peace with the fact that people were not like who Edwin Raymond is and what Edwin Raymond stands for so personally no I'm not in fear granted not, I'm not making it easy for you <laughs> you know you better come correct if you don't come for me Damn. at the same time bars you know <laughs> but at the same time you know I'm, I'm, I've made peace with it I, I <laughs> put it this way if I wasn't at peace with it, self-preservation would have prevented me from even taking the first step. Because this is, if you really break this right. down, this really scary stuff that I'm involved in. Right. You understand? Mm -hmm. You have to be fearless. You have to. There's no way to do this if you're not fearless. You know? And your There's, ancestors uh, will you. Exactly. You know, actually within um so we have a fraternity of Haitian police officers. It's called Haitian American Law Enforcement Fraternal Organization. Uh, the acronym is HALIFO. And um, they call me Disali. That, that's, that's my name wow. within the fraternity. Yeah. And anyone knows anything about, you know, the, um, the Haitian Revolution and Haitian history, Disali was, was the leader. You know, Toussaint is who gets all of the accolades because he was, he was the thinker. He could read. Um, but he actually never saw Haiti uh, independent because he was tricked into going to France where they, they put him in a, in a dungeon. Mm. You know, he was tricked into going to France to sign papers and have a treaty. But it was, it was you know, they figured they took away the leader that, that, that this, the, the, the rebellion would, would cease. But this only quickly saw what happened and took charge. And he, you know, he's the one that in Haiti who's revered, basically. And this is what I'm called by, by the Haitian Catholic, which means a lot to me. That's a heavy burden to it carry. Is. You know, I don't like. I don't want him to come off arrogant, you know. But sometimes I'm like, I don't, I don't think I could accept it. But this is what they call me. But if your peers acknowledge you as such, then they see the value and they see they see those inherent qualities in you. That is that is a powerful. A powerful statement, a powerful yeah. name to carry. And and I just yeah. pray for you every day that God will cover you, your ancestors will walk with you. You know, before you go, who are who are some of the black leaders, revolutionaries and renaissance men that you, you're inspired by? We already know Marcus Garvey. Oh yes, Marcus Garvey. <laughs> I actually have the same exact birthday as Marcus Garvey. Wow. On the 17th. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Um, You'll be written in history so, uh, books, Edwin. Come on now. I mean, I don't know. If I deserve that, then so be it. If it's able to inspire people, then I'm all for it. 
Um, yes. But starting with, uh, you know, obviously the Haitian Revolution, to celebrate de Saline, Henri Christophe, Capo uh, um Alexander Pétion. Um, outside of the Haitian Revolution, we have J- Joel Augustus Rogers, J.A. Rogers from Jamaica, Stokely Carmichael, a.k.a. Kwame Torre from Trinidad, uh, C.L.R. James from Trinidad, France, um, Fanon from, I believe he was from Martinique. Um, the, I mean, the list goes on. Eric Williams from Trinidad. Before he changed, he, you know, he started to switch on us after he became <laughs> prime minister. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the original Eric Williams, the, the academic Eric Williams, mm-hmm. um, Walter Rodney from Guyana, mm-hmm. Maurice Bishop from mm-hmm. Grenada. Mm-hmm. You understand? Like, like all across the, the Caribbean, I have, uh, you know, people who have inspired um, here, Nat Turner, you know, Denmark Vesey. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Dr. King, uh, Brother Malcolm. Um, I mean, the list the list really just goes on and on and on. I went from age 19 to 22. I read, I inhaled books. I couldn't read these books fast enough, just knowing the work that was done before me. Um, you know, the work that we get to just pick up the books and learn and carry on. But these men were pioneers in, in the work that they did. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Steve Biko, Patrice Lumumba, Thomas Sankara, one of the best kept secrets from Burkina Faso, um, the men who walk upright. Uh, Thomas Sankara, I'm going to repeat that. You know, he died, he was assassinated by French, Belgian, even U.S. CIA was involved on October 15, 1987. We just lost him, and he's virtually unknown. This is a man that we need to know. It's one of the things that unfortunately comes from the change in language, you know, because he spoke French. And if it was from an Anglophone African nation, you know much better being that this is an English-dominated world. But his work is translated, and we need to do the research. Um, and the list goes on, man. Can, uh, the list really goes on. Can you imagine that in a few years from now, I'll be asking someone else this question, and in the list of names that they call, they'll say Edwin Raymond? Like, I, I, it's, hard, it's hard to imagine that. You know, that'd, be, that'd, that'd be amazing. You know, that'd be amazing. But, you know, I'm just here to do the work. If, if the people feel it deserves recognition, then I, I respect it. You know, especially, most, most importantly, if it can inspire. You know, but that's, all, that's what I want to do. Um, I'll tell you, over 2,000 law enforcement officials across the nation have reached out to me in the last three years and told me that I've inspired them. You know, it's every day I get rookie cops NYPD rookies, rookies from around the nation, people in the police academy saying, you're the reason that I decided to join the police department here in this small city. You're the reason I joined the NYPD. I'm in the academy now. Can you please be my mentor? Can you guide me? So that that's an uplifting feeling, you know, that I can mentor other folks, you know. Powerful. And we, we acknowledge you for using your social media platforms to extend that form of mentorship by promoting the things that you believe in, by, you know, showing how it is to police in a positive way. Before we go, I want you to tell us, tell the people, especially the people in New York City and Brooklyn, why should they vote for you? All right. Uh, look into my work, you know. Only vote for me if you feel that this is who you want to represent you. You know, in referencing some of my work, I took on the police department head-on, you know, in a federal class-action lawsuit in the Southern District that's still going on, that once we're successful, it will help push the needle in the right direction. 
You know, I'm not afraid to say what's right, no matter what cost it would be to me personally. This is what you need to represent you. You know, I don't have time to play politics. You know, I'm just here to do the work. I believe in a true democracy. And when you look at our political system, we have, we have <laughs> turned away from that a while ago. This is what I, I want to turn, you know, I want to steer it back in towards that direction, at least in District 40, where I want to represent. And hopefully the entire city can kind of follow suit. This is what I want to bring to City Hall for you. Lieutenant Edwin Raymond, you are amazing. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for coming on In My Head with Jay Bless. Thank you for being, you know, this powerful force in our community. Thank you for using your voice for change. Thank you for being that change. Is there anyone you want to shout out real quick before we go? Um, uh, just, just everyone that's doing good work out there. No, no particular names. You know, just everyone that's doing good work. Everyone, everyone knows. Everyone who knows me, they know how I feel about them. Just continue doing the good work. And that's pretty much it. Shout out to you for having this great platform also. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We wish you all the best. We will be rallying behind you. District 40 in Brooklyn. Lieutenant Edwin Raymond is now running for councilman. He needs your support. And you've seen his work. You've seen his work ethic. You've heard him right Check here. <laughs> Check out Crime and Punishment, the documentary. A link for the documentary will be found in this episode summary. Mr. Raymond, thank you so much. No problem. In my According to numerologysecrets.com, the master number 44 or 44 carries the significance of vibration four and eight with amplification. It's also known as the master healer, and it is very rare in numerology. Not only is it considered lucky in Chinese astrology, but it's also a number associated with royalty, the historical hierarchy, and completion. I know my girlfriend, Karima, who's listening right now, is probably getting hype off of me talking about numerology on the podcast, but I felt it was imperative to like mention this. Um, though In My Head with Jay Bless has 47 published episodes, um, three bonus episodes, today we have marked this episode officially number 44. And I want to shout out to my dude, Kenyon, who brought this to my attention this week and let me know, yo, you need to be aware of the content that you're getting ready to publish to the world under episode 44. This episode with Edwin Raymond was planned, planned. We've been planning this for a long time, but we came back to the drawing board and planned it to close off Caribbean American Heritage Month. The number 44 represents the amplified energy and symbolism of the number four and symbolizes hard work, practicality, and foundation. Number 44 people are known as healers. I found that was really, really powerful when I read that. They are usually in powerful positions in society because they have the ability to reach out to many people and influence them with their strong personality. Yo, even President Obama was what? He was U.S. President number what? 44. I say all this to say, support this brother. Look out for this brother. He is doing a great work and has been doing his part through his own personal life to impact change in his community. 
elect him to office for the New York City Council seat of District 40. And let's get the real work done. Love this episode? Share it on social media. Here's what I want to know. Who are some of the Caribbean American people in your community that are affecting positive change? Use the hashtag HedbaJB and join in on the conversation on social media. I love each and every one of y'all. I love y'all. And I thank you for loving me back. I thank you for supporting Heaven JB. If you're new to the podcast, because you just came to hear this episode, yo, we got we got a lot. <laughs> Scroll through. Scroll through. Find an episode. Listen, yo, last week's episode for Father's Day weekend, George Thomas, I am not your slave. Wow. Wow. Go listen to that. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see y'all, hear y'all, love upon y'all and give you another episode in July. In the meantime, have yourself a wonderful, wonderful rest of June. And I look forward to seeing you or hearing from you or chatting with you in another episode of In My Head.